Thank you for that music. Good morning, everybody. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. It's uh, unbelievably natural for me to be here as far as how I feel. Uh, I look out and I know most of you and those of you who don't know me or if I don't know you over the course of the summer, I trust we'll get to know one another. But this church very much does feel like home. As Kim mentioned, Pastor Mark and I go way back. He was actually in the youth group of the church that I pastored many years ago. And we are going to move from that quickly before you try to start doing the math and decide just how old I might be. And, but uh, I love him dearly. I love the family dearly. I'm so pleased that Mark can experience the sabbatical. That's a very good thing for him. It's a very good thing for the church. And also glad it gives me the opportunity to be with you for the next couple months. And I trust we're going to have a very good time together. Again, the text is 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. Have you ever heard the saying, one man's trash is another man's treasure? Have you ever stopped along the street to retrieve something another person tossed in the garbage or had set out on the curb for refuse pickup? You saw it and thought to yourself, I can't believe they're throwing that out. I know what I can do with it. And then you took it home and turned it into something that you believe to be a value. I will confess I have now and then rescued things from the dump that caused my wife to raise her eyebrows. But I had a plan for those things and was amazed that someone else had thrown them away. It's possible to turn trash into treasure. At least if you're a pretty good artist, you can do it. Maybe you've seen a chainsaw artist take an old stump and turn it into an amazing wooden sculpture. I can't do that, but I do remember when I was a kid making some crafts out of popsicle sticks that my mother liked. Uh, Maybe you have a hobby where you turn old plastic bags into rugs to put on the floor, or maybe you take some old table utensils and turn them into fancy jewelry. It's possible to make something special out of that which is common. It is certainly possible to use the ordinary to accomplish the extraordinary. As we read the pages of Scripture, we see that God often does this with people. He is the ultimate artist. He can do anything with anyone. In God's hands, the common becomes sensational. And speaking of this very matter, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. In that New Testament text, the apostle was speaking of the weaknesses and limitations of those who serve God. And he was saying, we are like the clay pots that easily crack and easily break. And yet, at the same time Paul was referring to us as those clay pots, he was also rejoicing in how God uses people like us anyway. He turns the clay pots into treasure. And that means it's not necessary to be a perfect person. It's not necessary to be an exceptionally talented person. It's not necessary to be a highly educated person. It's not necessary to be a mentally gifted person to be mightily used by God. All that is necessary is to surrender our hearts and commit our lives for His use. With this particular sermon, we're beginning a series of messages that will take us through the time I'm with you this summer. And the subject of the series of messages is the ministry of the prophet Elijah. The title of the series is Elijah, the Ordinary, Extraordinary Man. 
Elijah was an ordinary man who did extraordinary things because the hand of God was upon him. And the overall challenge of this series is to understand and embrace what God can do and what God will do through ordinary people like me and you when we put our trust in him and obey him. The series starts at 1 Kings 17, 1, reading from the New International Version. Here's what the verse says. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now the first thing we need to see from this verse is the ordinary person. If you're a note taker, write that down, ordinary person. I usually have PowerPoint to accompany the messages, but I am a Mac guy, and this is a PC church, so we're not quite yet sure how to make that work, but I'm going to try to have PowerPoint for you next week. But this week, I guess it's the old-fashioned pen and paper. We start with the ordinary person. 1 Kings 17.1 simply tells us Elijah was a Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead. This is an inauspicious introduction. It's entirely unlike what happens when a celebrity is introduced on a performance stage. In a theatrical situation or a show situation, there's usually a master of ceremonies who takes it upon himself to list the credits, the awards, and the achievements made by the person everyone's about to see. There is pomp and fanfare. There's a big ta-da! But not with Elijah. He just emerges in this biblical narrative. The story starts with him speaking to a king. We're not told how old Elijah is. We're not told what he looked like. We're not told the names of his father and mother. We're not told if previous to this point he had done anything noteworthy. There's nothing said about his past relating to what might have qualified him to speak to a king. As one commentator put it, Elijah arrives on the scene as a man dropped in from the clouds. And he wasn't really dropped in from the clouds, but the whole point is just all of a sudden he's there. And we don't know anything about him until the story starts. And this means we really don't need to know anything about Elijah as far as his past is concerned. His credits and qualifications are not an issue. If we did need to know those things, the Bible would tell us. Since it doesn't tell us, his education isn't a concern. His training is not a concern. His past accomplishments are not a concern. The only concern is this core truth, and that is, he is a man God has chosen to use. And when we know that much, we know more than enough. Now, I should clarify, there is a tidbit of information in this verse about Elijah, but the tidbit only further establishes the fact that his background is insignificant. We're told he was a Tishbite from Tishbe. My wife and I first started a ministry many years ago. We spent eight years in Presho, South Dakota. If you've ever traveled Interstate 90 across uh, South Dakota, you may have noticed the existence of Presho, but if you noticed, you barely noticed. It's about halfway across the state. It's a great little community. We had many wonderful experiences there, but Presho is certainly not a New York City or a Los Angeles. It's definitely not a London or a Paris it's just a tiny little town that, apart from the people who live there, almost nobody knows about Presho or cares about Presho. Somebody said, you know, it's a small town when every time a dog crosses the street, you know its name. That's Presho. <laughs> Somebody said it's a small town when they had a local beauty contest and nobody came in second or third. That's Presho. 
You know, it's a small town when the only time there's a traffic jam is when a farmer drives his combine down Main Street. That definitely was Presho. Well, Tishbe was the Old Testament version of Presho. It was a small, out-of-the-way place. Some even question if it was a specific place. The word Tishbite basically means stranger or wanderer. It suggests a life of moving around, sort of a nomadic existence, maybe out of necessity because of changing food supply and weather. And this moving around would have taken place in the general area identified as Gilead. And please do notice the verse does tell us, as a Tishbite, Elijah had come from Gilead. In those days, Gilead was a rugged, unsettled region of the Holy Land. It was rough country. The people who lived there had hard lives. And this very strongly suggests Elijah was not a man of social graces and refinement. Some of you will remember the old TV show, The Beverly Hillbillies. Now listen to a story about a man named Jed. Well, that might be a good way to think about Elijah. Now listen to a story about a man named Elijah. Uh, He he was a Jed. He was a hillbilly. That's what Gilead means. Yet in this this verse, 1 Kings 17.1, we find him speaking to a king. And it's very important to understand this emphasis I'm presently making relating to Elijah's unimpressive and inconsequential background is warranted. There's a New Testament text that makes it clear we are to view Elijah as only a common man. Listen to the words of James chapter 5, verse 17, a very important text in conjunction with 1 Kings 17, 1. James 5, 17 says, Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. The New International Version reads, Elijah was a human being even as we are. The New American Standard Bible reads, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. The International Standard Version says, Elijah was a person just like us. As we consider the power that worked through Elijah's life, as we consider the ways his prayers were answered, as we consider how God used him, we are to remember in the midst of it all, he was made of the same stuff of which we are made. He had no more advantages than we have, probably less advantages than we have. Nevertheless, he was doing God's work, and as he did it, incredible things, even miracles, took place. Do we understand how common it is for God to use common people to accomplish uncommon things? For example, in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29, listen. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things which are not to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast before him. And essentially, those verses are telling us God prefers to use little people, little places, and little things for his glorious purpose. So we must never make the mistake of thinking, I'm just a tishbite. How could God use me? Or, or I just live out here in Hot Springs, South Dakota. What can God do in my life? And I think there are occasions, maybe many occasions, when God's people limit opportunity and miss blessings because they look too much at their own limitations and too little at what God Almighty can do. They say, look at me, I'm nothing special. Look at me, I never went to Bible college or seminary. 
Uh, look at me uh, and, and the problems I've got. Look at me. I'm just an average person with an average job, living in an average place with an average dog that chases the average cat. How can I expect great and wonderful things to happen in my life? And such thinking absolutely is in the wrong direction. We're not supposed to be focusing on who we are or are not. We're not supposed to be focusing on what we do or do not have to offer. We're supposed to be focusing on what our God is able to do. Look at Elijah. On the one hand, he's a nobody. He's just a tishbite from Gilead. On the other hand, he is somebody God has chosen to use. Therefore, he is going to have one of the most amazing lives of anyone who's ever lived on the face of the earth. And in coming weeks, we're going to talk about one amazing thing after another that happened in the life of this man. So we start with an ordinary person. That's point number one. Number two, we come to the opportunity presented. The opportunity presented. This opportunity is not shown by the words of the text as much as it is shown by the context of the text. In 1 Kings 17, 1, we see the name of the king to whom Elijah spoke. It's Ahab. Well, we do know a thing or two about Ahab. He was an ungodly, selfish crybaby of a man. When he didn't get his own way, he pouted. Most of the time, he did get his own way, and when he got his own way, it was evil. His father had been a wicked king by the name of Omri. If you try to remember interesting names in the Bible, just think of the fact that Omri was Henri. Omri, Henri. 1 Kings 16, 26 tells us Omri led the nation of Israel to sin and to provoke the Lord God of Israel. That's again chapter 16, verse 26. Under Omri's reign, God had become very angry with the nation of Israel. But then if you look at 1 Kings 16, verse 28, we're told when Omri died, Ahab inherited the throne. And following verses tell us Ahab was worse than Omri. So Omri was Omri, but Ahab was awful. He led the nation into idolatry. His overall behavior was more despicable than any king before him had ever been. If you look at 1 Kings 16, 33, we're told Ahab, listen to this, it's amazing. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings that had gone before him. Israel had known some bad kings, but Ahab was the worst of the worst. Even a Tishbite. Even a hillbilly from Gilead would have known this. He would have known the reputation of Ahab. Even a Tishbite, a hillbilly from Gilead would have known he was putting his own life at risk by daring to take the word of God directly into the court of such a king. Elijah understood the circumstance. He knew the message he was there to deliver was not the message the king wanted him to hear. He knew his message would put him in danger, but he was there anyway. Historians tell us part of the worship of idols in those days involved the sacrifice of children. People would take their little babies and throw them into furnaces. Or else they would put them inside of leather and cloth bags and throw them off the roof of the temple to be dashed to pieces below. And this was an effort to appease their false gods. Who knows what a king who endorsed such behavior and Ahab did. Who knows what a king like that would do to a man who dared to inform him of God's coming judgment. But again, Elijah's there. 1 Kings 17.1 shows us he's there and he's giving the message. And this raises a critical question. Why was Elijah there? This was a new thing for me. I thought I knew the story, but I'd never noticed that until preparing for this message this time. And that is, the answer is not as obvious as it would seem. You might say to yourself, he was there because God told him. But I want you to notice something. 
I want you to notice something that is not in the verse. Normally, we want you to see what is in the verse, but I want you to see what isn't in the verse. You cannot find in 1 Kings 17, 1, these words, the word of the Lord came unto him. Look at 1 Kings 17, 2, the word of the Lord came unto him. Following that, Elijah obeyed. Look at 1 Kings 17, 8, the word of the Lord came unto him. Again, as he did, he did as he was told. Look at 1 Kings 18, 1, the word of the Lord came unto him. Along with the phrase, the word of the Lord came unto him, there are other examples of Elijah receiving specific instruction wherein he knew exactly what God wanted him to do. Look at 1 Kings 17, 14. It's where Elijah says, For such said the Lord God of Israel. Elijah knew that God had said something, and he let it be known what God had said. So go back to 1 Kings 17, 1. Why, at the beginning of this story, when Elijah faces a daunting task and an extreme challenge, are we not told the word of the Lord came unto him? Why is it not in this verse? And here's a possible answer. Conjecture's involved, but I believe there's biblical basis for the conjecture. And the basis is that verse I already mentioned from the New Testament, James 5.17. In that New Testament verse, James 5.17, after telling us Elijah's a man just like us, it goes on to say, and he prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain. Well, he, he made that prayer before he went to Ahab, because in 1 Kings 17.1, he's telling Ahab, it's not going to rain. It's fascinating to put these things together and realize Elijah is telling Ahab something that Elijah has been praying earnestly about before he ever entered the king's court. Now look again at how the verse reads. What exactly did Elijah say to King Ahab? He said, as the Lord God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. He didn't say accepted God's word. He said accepted his word. Elijah had prayed for something to happen, and he was there to tell Ahab his prayer had been answered. So it may be this adventure started just as much with Elijah's desire and Elijah's prayer as it did with God's specific instruction. And this puts Elijah before us as a man on a mission, a mission that was personal. Now, bear with me as we try to understand this. I think it's also significant that Elijah had a scriptural basis for the message he took to Ahab. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 11, and I know I'm going fast today, but you can write down Deuteronomy 11, verses 16 through 17. Deuteronomy 11, 16 and 17. Listen to what the Bible says. Beware that your hearts are not deceived, and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens, so there will be no rain, and the ground will not yield its fruit, and you will perish quickly from the good land the Lord is giving you. Then in Deuteronomy 28, 24, we have a similar promise relating to what would happen if Israel went into idolatry. Deuteronomy 28, 24 says, The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. So what was, there? what was there by way of promise in the Mosaic law? The nation goes into sin, God's going to hold back the rain. So what do we have now with Elijah going before this idolatrous king? We have him going before the king to announce that what God promised is what's going to happen. And added to it, Elijah's been praying that it would happen because he cared about the condition of his nation. 
He cared about the path, the wrong path that Ahab was taking the nation down. He saw a problem. He wanted to do something about it. He was highly motivated for the sake of righteousness and truth, and he was guided by the promise of Scripture. So let's get back to this business of God using ordinary people. I can imagine someone saying, well, if God ever gives me something special to do, I'll do it. <laughs> if God floats down a sign from heaven telling me some, some mission that's mine, well, well, I'm sure I'll respond to that in the right way. Well, should that be our perspective? Should we spend our lives waiting for some unique call of God and until it happens, just try to go on living normal lives? Or should we realize there's already a mission and there's already a cause and there's already a call to action? The ancient Israelites threw babies into furnaces or off the roof of the temple. Modern Americans, calling it the woman's right to choose, cut unborn babies into pieces to remove them from the womb or use drugs to terminate the lives of tiny yet living human beings. Is there not already a mission and a cause and a call to action? Do you really need God to send down a sign to tell you you have something to do? In our days, it's become popular for celebrities to glorify atheism. In our day, higher learning institutions are filled with educators who encourage young people to toss aside the moral codes under which they were raised. They also encourage youth to view the Bible as a collection of fantasy and fairy tales. Worse than that, they even want young people to view the Bible as a bad book that harms society. Is there not already a mission and a cause and a call to action? In our day, we see profanity and immorality unrestrained. We see ungodliness promoted and even glorified. Is there not already a mission and a cause and a call to action? Around us, we do not see idols made of stone and wood, as they were there in the days of Ahab, but idols do exist today in the sense of human beings treating the acquisition of money and fame and power as if they are things to be worshipped. Yes, there is a mission. There is a cause. There is a call to action. There are many in this community who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There are those people with whom we cross paths often, even daily, who do not understand God's word and God's ways and God's will. Now is not the time to wait for some sign to come down from heaven to say, hey, you have a mission too. But rather, now is the time, like Elijah did, to set about to get something done. There's a gospel to share. There's truth to declare. We are to already be passionate and ambitious about God's work. This is what we see in the man Elijah. He was not there in the court because God made him be there. He was not some Jonah who would have run the other way if he could have. He was somebody glad to do what God wanted him to do and glad to say what God wanted him to say. Now, I'm not saying that Elijah didn't have a call from God relating to this, and I'm sure that he and God had been in communion about what was going on. But I believe the reason 1 Kings 17.1 doesn't tell us the word of the Lord told him to go to Ahab is because we're to understand Elijah cared about this, and his heart was in this mission, and he was a man who wanted to do something. When I was a little boy, I had a rat terrier named Tiny. Tiny believed he had a perpetual mission. It was to chase everything that moved. Didn't matter if it was a cat, a rabbit, a dog, even if the dog was ten times the size of Tiny. If he saw it, he had to chase it. He'd strain at the leash. I still remember going, (laughs) basically choking himself to death. And you you could tell he was thinking, let me at him, let me at him, let me at him. 
And normally we wouldn't let him at them, but once in a while when we were hunting, we let Tiny off the leash. And when we did, it was like launching a rocket. He was a blur in pursuit of the target. Well, maybe we could say Elijah was off the leash. He was in vigorous pursuit of God's purpose. And we need to be like him. There's no shortage of opportunity for ministry and mission and sharing the message. There's such a need for passionate Christians to go after these things. And by the way, looking at this church, Southern Hills Evangelical Free Church, uh, we begin this series today with this message, which is serving notice on you as a congregation. And I'll put myself in it because Mary and I are going to be part of the congregation for the summer. But there's no intent that we're going to coast through the summer. And if you were thinking, Pastor, Pastor Mark's on sabbatical, we're just going to mess around and let things go till he gets back. Well, that's the fact that Pastor Mark's on sabbatical does not mean the work of this church is going to be put on hold. I may be a guest speaker, but I'm not a fill-in and I'm not a placekeeper. I'm here to provide continued teaching and challenge as this church continues with its mission. The third thing to see in 1 Kings 17.1, from the opportunity presented, the third and final point of the message is the obedient prophet. Why is it that a lot of ordinary people only experience ordinary lives? The reality of a marvelous, miracle-working God does not seem to result in anything marvelous or miraculous relating to them. And a big part of the answer to that question is to experience the extraordinary, the marvelous, and the wonderful, there must be obedience. There must be a conscious choice to follow wherever God leads. We have a New Testament text that gives us strong evidence to this. It's Hebrews 11.6, where the Bible says, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, he obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. The key words are he obeyed and went. And it's interesting. He didn't know where he was going, but God said go, so he went. And that is the key concept. He put himself in the position to be used by God because he was willing to obey and go where God told him to go. As we continue the story of Elijah, we're going to see the same thing again and again in his life. Elijah is a man who obeyed and went. I used to have a bumper sticker on my car that said, God says it, I believe it, that settles it. One day a friend said to me, that bumper sticker isn't quite right. And I said, oh, what's wrong with it? He said, well, whether or not you believe it, if God says it, it still settles it. I thought about it for a moment and I said, well, I understand what you're saying, but I still like my bumper sticker. I like it because to me, adding those words, I believe it, means I'm involved When God says it, and I believe it, then not only is it settled for eternity, but it's also settled for me in the here and now. Because I believe what God says, I will do what God says, and when I do what God says, I experience what God has promised. And that's the way it was for Elijah. It's the way it should be for all of us. Experiencing the impossible is not a result of sitting around and waiting for God to do something. It comes when we leave our comfort zones and move forward to do whatever it is that we can do, to take advantage of whatever opportunity we see, to try to fill whatever need put before our eyes relating to the kingdom of God. It would not have been comfortable for Elijah to tell King Ahab, I know from God it's not going to rain. Not going to rain till I say so. 
comfortable or not to give a message like that because of his faith that his, that was the message he was to declare, Elijah was obedient to share the message. He was an obedient prophet. So in conclusion, here's a question for you. How much would you pay for nine eggs? A couple dollars? Some of you ladies are thinking, nope, not going to pay that much for just nine eggs. Uh-uh. I'm waiting for an ad to come out somewhere. So why is it, in the year 2004, a Russian by the name of Viktor Vexelberg spent over $100 million to purchase nine eggs? The answer is they weren't normal eggs. They were eggs created by the House of Fabergé. Maybe you've heard of Fabergé eggs. They are carefully and wonderfully crafted works of art. Who would have thought somebody could take the simple concept of an egg and turn it into a thing worth millions of dollars? But that's what somebody did. Took an egg and made such value out of it in the eyes of man. Well, as amazing as that is, it is nothing in comparison to what God can do with a man or woman who commits himself or herself to being a tool, an instrument in God's hands. On the one hand, Elijah was a common egg. He was a tishbite. He was one of those hillbillies from Gilead. On the other hand, he was far beyond anything Fabergé ever created. For with his life in God's hands and his willingness to set out on a mission with an obedient spirit, His life became a series of one miraculous event after another. So the challenge is to be like Elijah, to let the spirit of Elijah be in us, and let the world see the amazing things can happen with a bunch of common eggs, because that's what we are. A bunch of common eggs will put ourselves at the service of the ultimate artist and master. Let's be those people who have no doubts or hesitation in surrendering ourselves to God's call and God's purpose. And I'd like for you now, please, to bow your heads, close your eyes, and take a few moments to review what you've just heard, and in particular, consider what it says to you personally. Are you here today just because it's Sunday morning and you're sitting through the service? Or is there something inside of you that says, I want to be used by God? I care about the condition of my nation, my community. I see the problems. I see the needs. I want to do something about it. Do you care? Would you ask God to use you? Would you commit yourself to obeying him? You might say, dear God, I really do pretty much feel like one of those Tishbites, one of those hillbillies from Gilead. But I know you're a God of miracles, and I want you to do great and wonderful things through me for your glory. And thinking about this church, our church, and the summer before us, would we pray that God use us? Would we pray that this be a summer of great and wonderful things happening? Let's get excited about what God could do with a bunch of common eggs. 
and what we're going to see happen in coming months. Father in heaven, you are the God of wonders, the God of miracles. And you are willing to use us in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of our foolishness. You do put your treasure in clay pots. We ask for your hand upon this church. We ask for your hand upon our personal lives. That you would work in us and through us. And that glory would come to you. And that we might see your power and your great work in wonderful evidence. Especially over the course of the summer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.